Well, if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling, if we could look at uh, this favourite psalm this evening, Psalm 116. <coughs> psalm 116. We're going to look at the whole psalm, just walk through it. Uh, but we'll just take as our text uh, the opening verses, verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. The opening words of this psalm remind us that that is the testimony of every Christian in every generation throughout the world. It doesn't matter about their upbringing, their background, their colour, their past, their income, their social status, their home, their family, their nationality, their tribe, or even the language they speak. All these things that make us so different and so unique on one level, uh, they don't really matter. Because the testimony of the Christian is, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. And that statement and confession, it encapsulates and it summarizes all of the commandments. Because the summary of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so the testimony of every Christian is that because we love the Lord, we are now striving to love him more and more. And we're striving to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. And we're striving to love our neighbor as ourselves. That, that's the personal testimony of the Christian. And that's our personal testimony tonight. And many of the Lord's people love this psalm. And we love it because it's so personal. In fact, Psalm 116, you could say, it is the personal testimony of the Christian. We're not sure who wrote these words. Some have claimed it was David. Others have said it was Hezekiah after he was recovering from his illness. We don't know. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter what physical hand penned these words. Because it was the Holy Spirit who inspired its composition. And he made it, you could say the Holy Spirit made this psalm applicable to every Christian in every generation. The Holy Spirit has applied this psalm to our lives and made it the personal testimony of every Christian. And it really is a personal testimony because it uses the words I, my and me over 30 times in this psalm. Uh, which not only highlights the personal nature of the psalm, but it also highlights the personal nature of our own conversion. Because when we come to that point in our lives where we can say openly and publicly, I love the Lord, we are confessing that we have a personal relationship with the Lord. And I suppose you could say that there is this great paradox in the testimony of every Christian. Because on the one hand, our love for the Lord and our relationship with the Lord, it's very private and it's very personal. 
But on the other hand, our love for the Lord and our relationship with the Lord, it's very public. Because in our profession of faith, we are issuing an outward confession of an inward reality. An outward confession of an inward reality in which we're praising the Lord outwardly because we have begun to praise him and love him within our own heart. And that's what's expressed in Psalm 116. The psalmist praises the Lord publicly because he has come to praise the Lord privately. He praises him publicly because he has come to praise him privately. And you know, that's why Psalm 116 is part of this group of psalms called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. They are the psalms numbered from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Uh, they're the Egyptian Hallel, and uh, as you can guess, uh, they were called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms because they recount the experience of the children of Israel as they were delivered from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And they were sung during uh, the Passover meal, which remembered that great moment of the Passover when the angel of the Lord passed over just before the Israelites were freed from Egypt. And they're called Hallel Psalms. From the word hallelujah. Which means praise the Lord. And their purpose is to praise the Lord for his great act of redemption. And that's also the reason every Christian sings the hallelujah. And that's why we confess I love the Lord. Because we too have been delivered from slavery and sin. By being redeemed by precious blood. And so Psalm 116 is a hallel psalm. It's. Uh, The personal testimony of a Christian who praises the Lord for their salvation. And this evening, as I said, I'd just like to walk through this psalm and see four aspects of the Christian's testimony. Four aspects of the Christian's testimony. There is the confession, the change, the conversion, and the commitment. The confession, the change, the conversion, and the commitment. So we'll look first of all at the confession. The confession. Read again just verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my plea, pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore for I will call on him as long as I live. And as we said, the opening words of this psalm are the confession of every Christian. But it was Spurgeon who said in his Treasury of David... He said that the words, I love the Lord, they are a blessed declaration. And Spurgeon says, every believer ought to to be able to declare without the slightest hesitation, I love the Lord. And he says that uh, this command, it was required under the law, as we said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, your soul and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. But he says that love was never produced in the heart of mankind except by the grace of God alone. In fact, Spurgeon says that it's a great thing to say, whether publicly to others or privately to yourself, it's great to repeat the statement, the blessed declaration, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord. Because he says, the sweetest of all graces and the surest of all evidences of salvation is love. And that's so true because one of the key attributes of God is love. John says God is love. And God 
Paul says God has demonstrated his love towards us and that whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says to us, greater love has no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends and that we cannot be separated from this love of Jesus Christ because the love of God, it has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the first evidence of the Spirit indwelling in our hearts, the first fruit of the Spirit, says Paul, it's love. It's love. And you know, I've always loved that passage in John chapter 21. The passage after Peter had denied Jesus, denied ever knowing Jesus. Peter had denied Jesus so publicly, and yet Jesus went to Peter so privately. And he asked Peter personally, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter responded to Jesus and he was restored by Jesus when he publicly confessed, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And it's a beautiful passage, John 21. And it reminds us of the love and compassion of Jesus in restoring his people. But Peter's confession, it also proved that he was repentant from, he had repented of his disobedience and that the Lord was working in his heart. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And for Peter, and you could say the psalmist here, and for every Christian, we not only know that we love the Lord, but we also know why we love the Lord. Because he says, as he says here, He heard my voice. He has heard my pleas for mercy. He has inclined his ear to me. He heard me. I love the Lord because he heard me. He heard me. And the language which which the psalmist is using, it's the language of, of humiliation. Because the title, Lord, as you know, I love the Lord. The title is the title of the covenant king. He's the one who keeps covenant with his people And he loves his people with an everlasting and an unchanging love. And the psalmist is saying, the covenant king, the Lord, he has stretched down. He has lowered himself and humbled himself to listen to my pleas for mercy. The Lord has humbled himself to listen to me. And this is not just, he's not just making this statement of fact. This is a statement of absolute amazement. The psalmist is Amazed and honoured that, and even privileged, privileged to have had the king of glory, the covenant king who sits enthroned on high. He feels honoured that he would bow down his ear and listen to his cry for mercy. And his response to such humiliation of the Lord is love. He loves him. I love the Lord because he heard me. I love the Lord because of what he has done for me. He has heard me. He has heard me. And you know, when we look back over our own lives, many of us can confess that there was a time when we didn't love the Lord. Yes, we may have respected the Lord and the Lord's house and the Lord's cause and the Lord's day and the Lord's people. But we didn't love him. He loved us because he spoke to us many times in the gospel. We heard his voice on on many occasions. 
Because even then he was telling us that he loved us. And he spoke to us through his word. He spoke to us through other Christians. He spoke to us through all the providences in our lives. The Lord spoke to us time and time again through, through many different mediums and many different experiences. But we never listened to his voice. He was speaking, but we weren't listening. But then something changed. And that change, it caused us to start listening and to start speaking. And the more he spoke, the more we listened. And the more we listened, the more we spoke. And the more we spoke, the more he listened. And he listened to our voice. And that's when it became a relationship with the Lord. That's when we began to love the Lord more and more. When we spoke to him, he heard us. And the psalmist says that because we have heard his voice, he has heard our voice. And we have to maintain this relationship, he says, as long as I live. As long as we live, we have to maintain the relationship. Because if we stop, if we stop, well, it's just like any other relationship. They become a stranger to us. We can't confess that we love a stranger. So we have to keep listening, listening to his voice. We have to keep speaking to him. We, we have to keep confessing our love for the Lord because we are in a living and active relationship with him. But we have to ask, how did this change take place? How did that change happen in our lives? What caused us to start listening to the Lord and speaking to the Lord and loving the Lord? What was the change which brought about this confession? What was the change? Well, that's what I'd like us to consider secondly. Because as we said in the psalm, there are four aspects to the Christian's testimony. There's the confession in verses 1 and 2. And then the change. And we look secondly at, these, at the change in verses 3 to 6. The change. He says, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of the grave laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. And what the psalmist wants to make clear in these verses is that the change which came about in his life and experience and in ours, the change was from death to life. Because he, he describes death and the sorrows of death. He says it's like a snare. He says that death was like an army that was hemming us in on every side with no way of escape. Death had its grip on us. We were ensnared by death and the power of death because of our sin. And because death was surrounding us with no way of escape, he says the grave was closing in on us. The grave was moving closer and closer towards us. And the way the psalmist describes death and the grave it makes me think that they were like two kings. Two powerful kings who were allied together in order to bring destruction upon us. In which death's army was hemming us in. And the grave's army was 
slowly moving in to destroy us. But you know, what I love about this verse, verse 3, and these enemies, you could say, death and the grave, is that Peter quoted these verses, or this verse, verse 3, on the day of Pentecost, when over 3,000 souls were saved. And Peter says to them that they have been delivered from death and the power of the grave. And he quoted them because they have been saved and delivered because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he stressed to his congregation, those thousands that were in front of him, he stressed to them that even though Jesus was delivered into the hands of death and the grave, they couldn't hold him. They couldn't hold him. These two kings, death and the grave, they they couldn't hold them. These kings who ruled this world for millennia, they were defeated by King Jesus. Because death was destroyed in the death of Christ. Or as John Owen put it, the death of death was in the death of Christ. But Jesus, he not only destroyed death, with his death he also conquered the grave by his resurrection. And that's what Paul affirms to us again and again in the New Testament. That in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death and the grave have been swallowed up in victory. And now King Jesus, he stands over these enemies, these dead kings you could say. And he says to them, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And Paul is saying to it all, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, the wonder of our salvation is that King Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And for the Christian who loves the Lord, death is no longer the enemy it once was. And yes, there is the pains of this life and there's no hiding that. There's the pain of separation and loss because of the death of loved ones. But the hope for the Christian is that death is not eternal because death, it cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And we may ask, well, what brought about this change in our, our experience? What, how did we come to embrace the love of Christ and the blessedness of eternal life And all we can say is that it was through the humiliation of Jesus Christ. It was the humiliation of the Lord that enabled him to, first of all, hear our pleas for for mercy. That's what he said in verses 1 and 2. But it was also the humiliation of the Lord in dying our death. God manifest in the flesh. God himself dying our death. That's what brought about the change from death. To life. Because when we heard the Lord speak to us in his word. That's what enlivened our hearts. By his spirit. We were made to see the seriousness of our condition. That our sin. Our sin it had separated us from God. We were made aware of these two kings. Death and the grave. We were made aware that they were fierce enemies. And that we were in the grip of death under the power of the grave. And we were made to know that for many years the God of this world had blinded the minds, our minds, with unbelief. But you know, when the veil was lifted, when our eyes were opened, when our mind was renewed, 
we not only saw the brokenness of our condition, but we're also, we were also enabled to see the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus. And when we were brought to the end of ourselves, we could do no other but call upon the name of the Lord and cry to him for salvation. And the promise of scripture had came to us with such comfort and clarity that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But what the, the psalmist reminds us here is that we were saved and our soul was delivered and our pleas were heard. He says it's not because of who we were or even because we were asking. It was all because the Lord, as he says in verse 5, the Lord is gracious, righteous and compassionate. He says that the Lord who saves is the Lord who bestows favour. He's the Lord who imputes righteousness. And he's the Lord who loves unconditionally. And with that the psalmist says that the Lord, as he says in verse 6, he preserves the simple. The Lord keeps the simple. He guards us. He watches over us. And when he says that the Lord keeps the simple, he's highlighting that when we are brought from death to life, from darkness to light, we're also brought from ignorance to knowledge. Because from the moment of our conversion, we begin to grow. We grow not only in our love for our Savior, but also in the knowledge of our Savior. And we grow because we spend time reading the Bible. There's this desire to read the Bible. There's a desire to listen to the Lord speaking to us through his word. And that's what we were singing about when we were singing in Psalm 19. David emphasizes the change that the word makes in our life. When we take time to read it and study it and meditate upon it. He said God's law. It's perfect. What does it do? It converts the soul in sin that lies. Then he says God's testimony. It's most sure. And it makes the simple wise. The word of God makes us wise to salvation. And it frees us from the grip of death and the power of the grave. But as we said, Psalm 19 highlight, highlights that God's word not only makes the simple wise. As we grow in our knowledge of the Bible. It also emphasizes that God's word converts the soul. It converts the soul. I'd like us to see that that's the third aspect of the Christian's testimony. And that's what we see here in Psalm 116. There's the confession, I love the Lord. Then there's the change from death to life. From the power of the grave to new life in Christ. Then thirdly, there is the conversion. The confession, the change, the conversion. If you look at verse 7. He says, return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? <clears throat> and... In many ways, the change and the conversion 
You could say that they're synonymous. They, they mean the same thing, change and conversion. Because the transformation of a person from darkness to light, from death to life, uh, it's a change and it's a change that happens at conversion. But I want to highlight that this aspect of, I want to highlight it, the aspect of conversion just simply because the psalmist does. He's emphasized that the change which takes place in our life, from death to life, he says, that change, it's all of the Lord. We love the Lord because he is gracious, righteous, and compassionate. He bestows favor, he imputes righteousness, he loves unconditionally. That's the change which the Lord has brought about in our life. But when the psalmist speaks about conversion, he does so in the sense of his own active involvement in turning away from sin. Meaning that conversion is not just a work of the Lord. It is primarily a work of the Lord. But the psalmist draws attention to the fact that we have a responsibility in our conversion. Because the word return in verse 7, it literally means to turn back. And that's what the word conversion means. That's what it means to convert. We are facing away from the Lord, walking in sin. But when we are converted, we turn around. We turn back to the Lord. It's to turn back, to turn around and to actively turn away from our sin back to the Lord. And that's what he's saying here. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. The psalmist is speaking to his own soul and he's making this conscious decision to, to turn away from the things of the world and away from sin and to turn back to the Lord. He's active in his own conversion. He's not passive and just saying, well, this is all the Lord's work in a way. The Lord's going to do it. If the Lord's going to do the converting, he'll do it. No, he's actively converting. He's actively turning away from his sin and turning back to the Lord. And you know, this is why repentance is not enough. Because repentance means to change our mind. It's a turning of the mind in which we know something or someone or some place is, is wrong and it's sinful. And we repent of that sin. We, we, we turn our mind. We turn our mind away from it and we seek Forgiveness from the Lord. But my friend, repentance will not succeed unless we convert. Repentance will not succeed unless we convert. Because repentance is to have the change of mind. But conversion is to have the change of character. The change of character. And we need to actively be involved in both. Because we can know that something is wrong. Maybe it's wrong to say or wrong to do or wrong to go to this place. And we can experience conviction of sin for doing it. We can repent of that sin and yet not convert. We can have a change of mind but not a change of character. But the Bible stresses that both repentance of the mind and conversion of the character, both of them must be active in our lives. Both sorrow for sin and turning away from sin must be part of our Christianity. And that's what the Apostle Peter 
preached about. When you read Acts chapter 3, he's preaching to the Israelites and he's saying to them, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So my friend, we are to continually repent of our sins and convert. We are to actively turn away from our sin and turn back to the Lord. And when we grow in our Christian walk by spending time listening to the Lord in his word and speaking to him in prayer and gathering like this and in homes for fellowship with the Lord's people, our conscience, our conscience, it needs to be active and it needs to be alert to what is of Christ and of life. And we should be actively turning away from what is of death and what is of the grave. And you know, the psalmist, he's confessing his desire not to walk amongst that which is of death and the grave. Because he says in verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. His conversion means that he doesn't want to walk amongst the dead and seek pleasure amongst the things of the world. He doesn't want to walk You could say among the valley of the dry bones and the graveyard of this world where there is no life and just dead speech. No, he wants to walk in the land of the living. He wants to spend time speaking about the things that are of Christ and of life. And it's all because he is alive in Christ. He has been begotten again to a living hope. He has become a new creation and he has been brought from that darkness into the marvellous light of the gospel. But he also says in verses 10 and 11 that because of his love for the Lord and the change in his life and his conversion from his old life, there's opposition. He says that he's been afflicted because of it, verbally, maybe even physically. But it only reveals to him, these things only reveal to him the true colours of the world, what the world is really like. And of course, there's a great lesson for us here. As those who confess to love the Lord with all our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. The lesson is we have to walk in the land of the living. We're to actively turn away from death to life, from darkness to light, from Satan to Christ. And we're to repeatedly turn away from it. We're to actively turn away from the things that we know are unholy and unbefitting for a Christian. And we're to actively turn away from the things which contradict our confession that we love the Lord. And we're to actively convert and keep away from the things that will ever contradict the confession and mar our precious relationship with the Lord. My friend, as those who love the Lord, we have to actively guard our conversations, our company, and our conduct. As those who love the Lord, we have to actively guard our conversations, our company, and our conduct. But as I've said before, separation is not isolation. It's contact without contamination. And there has to be that balance. 
but there also has to be a line that is not to be crossed. Because far too often the Christian is in the world and the world is in the Christian. We need to remember that our confession, it's not only private, it's also public. And it's before an unlooking world that we are confessing that we love the Lord. Therefore we must strive to live up to our confession. Not only for our name, but for the Lord's name. And in doing so, in living up to our confession, we must acknowledge the benefits which the Lord has bestowed upon us. And we do that, as the psalmist indicates, we do it by our commitment. And so as we said, there are four aspects to the Christian's testimony that we see in Psalm 116. There's the confession, I love the Lord. There's the change from death to life. There's the conversion, we actively turn away from sin and back to the Lord. And then lastly, there is the commitment. The commitment. You look at verse 12. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. We mentioned earlier that this psalm, Psalm 116, it's part of a group of six psalms called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And they're the psalms, as we said, numbered from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And they were traditionally sung during the Passover meal, which was eaten in Jerusalem when all of the Israelites, the Israelites, Israelite pilgrims, they would gather together for the festival of Passover. And as we said, the purpose of the Passover was to, to recount the experience of the children of Israel as they were delivered from bondage and slavery in Egypt and brought out to go towards the promised land. But this Passover meal that remembered that great occasion. In the course of the Passover meal, as we've said before, there were four cups filled with wine. And these four cups, they were passed around the table, passed around at the Passover meal. And each cup, it was associated with the benefits that the children of Israel received in being delivered from Egypt. And so when the Passover meal was prepared, there would be the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread and, and the bitter herbs and many other things. And the Passover would begin by singing from Psalm 113, which is a psalm that praises the Lord for his faithfulness towards his people. And then after that, the first cup, the first of four, would be passed around the table, the cup of consecration. And the cup of consecration, it reminded the Jews that God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt because of his faithfulness to his covenant. And then the Israelites, they would sing Psalm 114, which is a psalm that begins with the words, when Israel went out from Egypt. And it's after that, after Psalm 114 was sung, the second cup of wine was passed around the table and it was called the cup of release. So there's the cup of consecration, then the cup of release. And as the cup of release was passed around the table, uh, the history of Israel coming out of Egypt and the occasion of the Passover when the angel of the Lord passed over all the houses, that story was then retold. And then the Passover meal 
of lamb and unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, that would all be eaten. But after the, the Passover meal was finished, the Israelites would then sing Psalm 115 and Psalm 116, which are about, Psalm 115 is about dedicating and Psalm 116 is about committing your life to the Lord. Psalm 115, it begins with a dedication of worship to the Lord, not unto us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. And as we've seen this evening, Psalm 116 begins with the confession, I love the Lord because he heard my voice. But as we see down in verse 12, in verse 12, the psalmist, he considers how he should render thanks to the Lord for his, the Lord's gift of salvation. And then in verses 13 and 14, in this act of public commitment, the psalmist acknowledges the Lord for his salvation. He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. And during the Passover meal, it would be at the end of singing Psalm 116 that the third cup of wine would then be passed around the table. And the cup, as you might expect from verse 13, it was called the cup of salvation. And then once the cup of salvation was passed around, they would sing Psalm 117. A psalm about the coming Messiah, the hope for all the nations, that all the nations are going to be blessed by the Messiah. And then after Psalm 117, the last cup was passed around, called the cup of the Messiah. And traditionally, the cup of Messiah was filled with wine and passed around the table, but no one would drink from it. Because the cup of Messiah was not to be drunk until the Messiah would come and drink it himself. And of course, in the upper room, when Jesus was eating the Passover with his disciples, when he was in Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, it was at the Last Supper, but it was at that point that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Where you could say he puts the Passover meal to one side, indicating the end of the Passover. And then he takes bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, gave to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had eaten the bread, Jesus takes the cup, the cup of the Messiah, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And it was after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper for the first time, he and the disciples, they sang the last Egyptian Hallel psalm, Psalm 118. That's why we sing it usually at the communion time. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And you know, when you come to a psalm like this one that we're looking at this evening, Psalm 116, and you, you see the testimony of the Christian just interwoven with the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's all there. And when you see this coming together with the confession, I love the Lord, the change from death to life, the conversion, the turning away from sin, and then you have the commitment of taking this cup of salvation and calling upon the name of the Lord. You know, I can't help but applying it to our own form of communion. 
Because in our act of commitment in coming to sit at the Lord's table, we are presenting ourselves, as Paul says, as living sacrifices. And we're vowing to the Lord that we are committed to him. We are saying we love him and we're committing ourselves. And whether we have never sat at the Lord's table or we have sat there for 40 years, every time should be an act of commitment in which we are committing to our confession. We are committing to our confession that we love the Lord and we're striving to love him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength and our neighbour as ourselves. And you know, is it any wonder to us then that the psalmist, he concludes his psalm with such words of commitment. In verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, he says. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. It's a beautiful psalm. But every time we come to it, and every time we sit at the Lord's table, we are committing to our confession. I love the Lord. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, it is a marvel that Thou dost love us at all. But we bless Thee and we praise Thee that Thy word affirms to us that that love has been shown and demonstrated and reaffirmed to us in the person of Thy Son, Jesus. And Lord, enable us, we pray as Thy people, to continue to confess that we love Thee, to live our lives that, as lives that demonstrate that we love Thee, and to tell others that we love the Lord and why we love Him. O Lord, we are so weak, but we give thanks to Thee for the great reminder that we are loved with an everlasting love and that we are those who need to keep loving Thee, not because we love Thee first, but, oh, because Thou didst love us first. Thou didst see us from all the ages of eternity and yet chose us in Christ from before the foundation of this world. Thy love is beyond our asking. We cannot even fathom the depth, the breadth, or even the height of it. But we thank thee, Lord, that it has been shown to us. We thank thee, Lord, that we can walk in that love and know that love each and every day. Bless us, Lord, as thy people. Keep us, O Lord, that thou wouldest truly keep us and that we may know that when we keep our eyes upon thee, that we are being kept, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed on the day of Christ Jesus. Bind us together, we pray. Go before us throughout the rest of this week. Remember those who could not be with us, with us this evening. Be near to them where they are. Keep us, Lord, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
We shall conclude by singing the words of that psalm. Psalm 116. Psalm 116, we're singing from the beginning. Page 395 in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 116, from the beginning down to the verse Mark 6. I love the Lord because my voice and prayers heeded here. I, while I live, will call on him who bowed to me his ear. Down to the verse Mark 6, to God's praise. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore.